Hi, my name is Lukas Langa. And my name is Pablo Galindo. And this is the Core.py podcast, a new podcast where we want to discuss internals of CPython and our adventures in making a new version of your favorite programming language. Today we're going to be talking about our uh, sprint in Brno, where we spent five days at the Red Hat offices in the Czech Republic to meet with other core developers to work on things that will land next October in Python 3.13. This is also the time of the year when all the uh, CI4C Python breaks suddenly. It's a big mystery. We don't know why it happens, but you know, at this time of the year, everything is broken. Uh, we have our best engineers working on solving this uh, problem. Uh, hopefully we can find a cause soon. So definitely lots of activity. This time, in fact, uh, we had a few uh, unique things happen on the sprint. Uh, we had guests from the HPy project discussing uh, CAPI um, issues and the possible future for that. Uh, and we announced the new uh, deputy CPython developer in residence, who is going to be Petr Viktorin, uh, up until now a Red Hat employee, but a veteran of the CPython project. It was an interesting. It was an interesting fact of the experience that uh, Red Hat and uh, he left Red Hat to be a, a developer in residence, right? Well, that that was one of the reasons why we didn't announce his, uh, you know, like role sooner than this. We found that it would be a little too awkward to uh, uh, have the host of uh, Sprint, you know, be on his official way out already. Right, it's, it's strategical reasons <laughs> people say. <laughs> Right, speaking of which, uh, we don't have a location chosen for the 2024 course sprint yet. Like we're, yeah, we're hearing this should be rotating between the um, continents. Uh, some of our guests from the United States uh, uh, sent us, you know, excited or frustrated, sometimes it's hard to say, descriptions on how they use public transit in Europe. So they would wish for the next one to happen somewhere in the United States. We don't really have a candidate for a host yet. So if you're thinking right now, oh, that could be me, well, contact us. Uh, we're, we, we definitely want to hear from you. Right, because for, for the listeners that uh, are not aware about this, this is something that we have been doing for a while. I think you organized maybe the first Cordoba Sprint back in the day? Right, like uh, back in the early 2000s, there was a one-time event uh, which was called the Need for Speed, and it was uh, an <laughs> event like I think it happened in Iceland, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it was very well regarded. You know, people had great uh, memories of it, but that was way before my time. So by the mm -hmm. time we started gaining traction with Python three, that was when we were working on uh, Python three point six. I organized the sprint at Instagram first, uh, and then the following year at Facebook. Uh, like which worked on a 3.6 and 3.7 respectively, which started the ball rolling. Then we moved to uh, Microsoft and to you, to Bloomberg, to London. Right, even more than rolling, right? Like if someone goes to the CPython repo and looks at those uh, statistics that GitHub shows, uh, you can see like a huge spike of activity. And uh, I'm pretty sure that is one of the two sprints that you organize. So yes. Until the faster Python team at Microsoft was formed, uh, the Python 3.6 sprint week was the most productive week in the project's history, you know, from the very beginning. That's where app strings were forged, right? If I recall correctly. 
Yeah, yeah. Like there, there were a few things uh, that happened there, and this was uh, a very well timed uh, sprint because it was just before the beta one uh, release. So we still were working on finalizing features. Right. Okay. So, um, like every one of us who comes to the sprint, obviously wants to see the location. Obviously we want to see each other as people and, you know, get to know, uh, what changed since we last saw each other. But the core of why we're there is, uh, to actually do some work. So, uh, like what would be some of the highlights of the week for you, Pablo? Well, there is plenty of stuff. Actually, it was a very proactive uh, sprint, I have to say. So for me, I think the highlights were uh, the incoming work of uh, or the the first the first uh, you know sprouts of the uh, the JIT compiler or a possible JIT compiler for C Python. That was very exciting to hear, and like it was a small demo and a, a technical talk by Brand Booker. Uh, I hope I'm not butchering his name, which also is a joke because the similarities between both words. Uh, sorry, Brand. Um, and um, so that was very excited. Um, I think it's the. F I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to be a dis disservice to everyone that has tried JITs before, for sure. But I think this is the. It just feels right for C Python in the sense that you know, as maybe if we have time to discuss it, uh, it's not. It doesn't feel too heavy and it fits quite nicely. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and obviously, like uh, the, I would say, the other highlight is, is the work that I'm doing because you know why not. Uh, which is this this uh, effort that we started to do um, a better REPL for C Python, so it doesn't it doesn't suck when you press uh, you know up arrow and it just shows you the last line of the for loop and instead of the entire for loop. So those are the highlights for me. So what about you? Uh, like when it comes to the general sense of what people are working on, definitely copy and patch, which is the approach that uh, Brand took for. Uh, making the proof of concept of our jet like take, takes the prize because not only does it look like it's very realistic for us, uh, it also kind of fits my brain in ways that I did not expect that part of the project to be able to you know kind of provide a high level explanation that I, I I would be happy with. So so that's awesome. I also liked how Yuri Sullivanov uh, picked up the issue of running, you know, kind of uh, shared data structures between sub-interpreters. And like he's done quite a lot of work on creating an immutable mapping that you will be able to uh, use between sub-interpreters without the need of serialization and deserialization, making it very quick. Uh, so I, I uh, you know, kind of took part in that like for a little bit. Spend most of my time uh, working with Mariada on making Bedivere and Miss Islington better. Now both of them are uh, GitHub apps. Uh, Bedivere is raising fewer exceptions than it was before that week, and Miss Islington became a GitHub app. So uh, I'm very happy to see that happen. Um, and myself, like. I uh, very often am tasked with reviewing code on the repo and some of the changes that we get are pretty sweeping. There would be refactors or whatnot. So I would want to have some more reassurance that uh, before and after of our refactor is actually still uh, doing the same thing. Like ideally, for example, when we're touching a lot of tests, I would want to know that we still have the same coverage. So I did some work on actually making coverage work now when we're working regression with, with regression tests on uh, multi-processing runners, uh, and more importantly, to be able to uh, have um, 
well, detailed and like trustworthy numbers for uh, line coverage of standard libraries, which is a harder problem than you would maybe uh, think in the first place. Right, we we discussed this, and uh, naively one could think like, why are we not using coverage.py? Right, like so. So we why we need this this entire new revamp of how we do coverage in C Python, right? And turns out it's not it's not it's not easy at all, right? Yeah. Well, uh, the 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 fun thing about this is that coverage py itself is using the Python Sun library. So, um, like w by the time you're getting to turn on the coverage gathering, you already imported quite a few uh, libraries, and you know this code will not be properly reported as being covered, even though it's obviously um, you know kind of imported is obviously there. But even funnier, um, by the time you import site py uh, during Python startup, like quite a few um, libraries get imported at the same time, and probably. The one that none of our listeners is thinking of is that uh, when you're initializing site packages, you are looking at .pth files. Those guys. Those .pth <laughs> files. Yes, like they're they're not just paths as maybe the uh, extension would suggest. They are actually lines of Python code, and you can put tiny single line snippets of Python there, and they will be executed. Uh, and some of those are uh, standard library imports as well. So you really need some way to start um, gathering um, coverage information before even that is run. And that is very early in the uh, interpreter startup. Right. Yeah, if I recall correctly, I mean, maybe we're going too much in the weeds, but I think it's interesting. Like there was a, some way coverage.py used to work with some hack or something like that with encoding small. Yes. You told me, and I was already horrified by the whole problem. Like now I think I was extremely more horrified about the hack. Like certainly it's not something that people should know about, but maybe maybe we can trace a secret knowledge. Well, uh, it's it's no longer super secret um, just because um, NetBatchelder actually removed that oh. hack uh, with the latest versions uh, since Python 3.13 made it harder for that hack to work, which is why now we're going to have proper support for such a use case. But before, Brett Cannon came up with a rather magnificent but also evil, unholy idea where to do anything in Python, to even be able to open files, to access standard output and input, and to even read uh, the user's PY files, what you need to agree on are encodings. So there is... Uh, a module called encodings that is imported like even before site py before anything else before the open built-in is added to built-ins uh the reason why you do this is that you not need to know uh that you know if there's a file using one encoding or another we are able to decode it and interpret it in a correct way so um brett's hack was injecting a fake encodings module that actually started gathering coverage first and then found the actual encodings module and only then initialized it uh, after we were already gathering coverage. So that was brilliant. Um, for the official support that I added at the sprint, I didn't go that far since if we had the ability to kind of insert code at this stage, it wouldn't be able to output anything by print. You wouldn't be able to see anything happening from your hook. So this is maybe, you know, a little earlier than what I set up, but uh, 
I think it will be harder for people to debug. Like you remember, you cannot use the breakpoint built in either at that stage. You cannot right, use right. PDB. Yeah, it's also the first thing that breaks when you change the interpreter and you break something like the parser or something like that. It's exactly the right. Module. All right, yeah, but like you're probably right that like this is this is a tiny feature that is mostly visible for us internally. We're maybe spending too much time on this, but the REPL is different. Uh, everybody's going is going to touch it at some point uh, in their you know usage of Python. So uh, tell me how the new REPL is different from what we have in Python three twelve. It's an interesting thing actually. Um, the one of the things I was um, you know I work mostly these days on the parser and, and the tokenizer when you know like if right. someone. Uh, is using Python three twelve. Uh, all the new f strings and all that comes from this work. Uh, so one of the most horrifying things that I, I had to understand there is that the REPL, which is you know when you type Python and you started to write Python code interactively, the REPL is the tokenizer. As you know, it's, it's like that is a interesting realization because like people like you know normally the way this is done is that there is a separate piece like that handles all this input and tries to compile the code. But there's not that no like all this logic happens. In the tokenizer, when Python is asking for new source, like you type something and then the tokenizer says, "Oh, give me something more." So it's, it's quite hard to add any features because it's literally on a piece that you know is super critical. It's in the critical path. It's, this is the worst code that you could write in the sense that it's not bad code, obviously, but the problem is that it's, it's code that is written in C that parses strings by hand, which is the most dangerous code that you can write because it's very easy to screw up, right? Wow. Obviously, the code is. Believable tested is the I think the, to this day is the oldest piece of C Python that we have. I think it's thirty year old. Um, you know, so it's the kind of code that works because it has survived over the years. But you know, you touch something and then something breaks six kilometers away. So something that we are trying to do right now is that we're trying to say, well, uh, you know, there is this is this, this has worked for thirty years, but like you know, is the is the year two thousand twenty three, and now we have like. Like new new requirements for for REPLs. For instance, right now you type a for loop or a function or something like that, and then you you make a typo, and then you want to just correct this. Uh, I think everyone, every Python programmer, at some point had to like this experience when you you press up arrow, and then you instead of getting the entire for loop, you get just the last line, and then you need to press up arrow in the like opposite way, right? So, so right. You, you you need to kind of write it backwards. And it's is yes. quite annoying. Very annoying. Yeah, and then you make another mistake, and then you need to start from the from the start uh, because obviously that's easy that that typing it again, right? Um, so so that that is not great. Um, and then there is so many other features that you know uh, are missing. For instance, uh, like many people like they 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 suffer this, but they don't think about it because like they they cannot accept it as a, how it is. One of the things that happen is that if you have a function that you type in a REPL, so you define your function. And then there is an exception in that function. You don't see the source in the traceback. So the traceback says, you know, function foo, but it doesn't show you the source of function foo because yes. when you type something in the REPL, we throw away the source. Like it's gone. Like it never existed. So there is no way we can show it to you because it's not in a file. It's just it was in memory and now it's gone. Um, so we we kind of say that it's time to modernize all of this. And I started all these like super annoying and boring work to slowly pull out the the REPL from the tokenizer, uh, which is uh, it needs a lot of pre-work, but hopefully the the stage where I want to get into is that at some point the the REPL is written in Python, so so we have some module called the secret REPL or something like that, I don't know, um, and then all the logic to you know read the input from the user and try to compile it lives there, and then 
everyone can start adding stuff because it's just Python now. And you know, you want multi-line editing? Well, you can do it in Python instead of writing 1,000 lines of C code, which is like obviously very complicated. And then you can use the real line module. You can use uh, any anything in the standard library instead of having to handwrite C code that deals with this and using the C real line and all that stuff. So obviously, we are not going to be as feature complete as IPython or all those um, other repos that are fantastic already. We just want that the default experience is is, is better, right? Like, and and as many people told me, like I was chatting with Brett Cannon about this, that is working on the VS Code team at Microsoft. Uh, a huge amount of people are just using Bird Python, like not even IPython or or Jupyter, like just Bird Python. Yes, and. And now Python is the language that people use to learn in many countries. Like in France, for instance, is the official language when people learn programming in high school. So it's very good. It's, 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 it's you know it's a good experience that is going to impact a lot of people. And now the sky is the limit because once this is in Python, I expect at least that a lot of people will start to contribute. Still, big plan uh, in the sprint. We managed to do a lot of like uh, the pre work, but we managed to get a feature now. So in Python three thirteen. You will be able to see source in the REPL uh, with all the bells, bells and whistles. So you know all the squiggles that you got in Python 3.11, uh, all the you know um, um, multi exception like the exception groups uh, trees and all that stuff. Um, so all of that thing which will be available for you in the REPL, which is already a, a big win if you are you know writing a lot of functions there or using Jupyter or something like that. So just to clarify, what that means is when you are defining a function inside the REPL, right? Just saying def name of a function, and there's a body of multiple lines. Yes. Right? And there's a call there and so on and so on. Now we're gonna see the actual kind of traceback that shows you the multiple steps where uh, of the code that you went through instead of just a single line in the REPL that was the last one that we executed. Exactly, yes. It's the source. Like the, the traceback already shows the the name of the function on the line. Yes. So it shows you line four, but like in a source that is gone because the REPL source is not safe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, just to clarify as well, um if the if the exception is traveling through existing files, so for instance for instance in the exception is raised inside the standard library, the files in the standard library will have source because there are files on disk and exactly. we can show it to you. But like anything that you type into the REPL will not be included right now, and, and what we're talking about now is that that will not be special anymore. So, so if you type a function foo in the REPL, uh, we will show the source for that. So it's not like groundbreaking, but it's just a first step uh, to normalize the REPL, and it's, well, you know, it's it, not it, this external. It's making thing. it less special, which I think is important, like for just you know, kind of. Less confusion by everybody, right? Like I, I can work with uh, the REPL and understand its limitations, but like the fewer of those there are, like the better, obviously. So this is gonna be a big win. I'm very happy to hear this. Right, and just just one last thing. One thing that uh, we there was some talk recently about precisely this fact. We will be able to special case some things in the REPL that are not in normal, let's say Python mode. For instance, a lot of people were complaining that if you type exit. But you don't call it, so it's just the word exit in the REPL. It will tell you, oh, to exit the Python interpreter, you don't need to say exit. You need to call exit because it's a it's a function, right? Mm-hmm. And, and many people will say, well, I mean, if you are able to detect that case, you know that the user wants to exit. So why you don't exit? And the reason we don't do that is because it's kind of a hack. Like that message is the is the um, the you know the string representation, the REPL, not the REPL, yes. the REPL of the of the uh, an ex, an object called exiter. That we inject in there is it's all like you know uh, dark dark secrets here, uh, but we cannot do it because otherwise we will affect the language. We will need to make exit a keyword. It's just very nasty, and and the reason is because you cannot change 
the token, like you need to change everything right now. And once we have this in Python, we can special case all of these things so we can finally exit if you type exit um, and distinguish that from a variable that you say exit equal five. And now we don't exit anymore because it's now a variable. Uh, so, so you know that that will be again not not groundbreaking, but a lot of it's just the small things that will add up and and will give everyone a nicer experience that just super bare bones reading code, right? So yeah, the fewer special cases like this, the better. Uh, in fact, like because of this, I very early on just learned to do Control Z on Windows since like my initial experience with Python was on Windows XP, and Oof. later switched to Control D on. On you know the grown-up uh, operating systems, right. uh, so yeah, it's, it's still use that to this day. Um, yeah, but typing exit would definitely be uh, more user-friendly. Right, right. Um, do you want to? One, I think one of the features most people will be excited about is this um, JIT work. Maybe we can talk about what we think. Probably we we can dedicate an entire episode to this and maybe invite the authors of the work uh, to go more into details. But I think it's interesting to at least give us uh, like first impressions. The shortest way to do it for me would be to go and you know actually spend a little time explaining that we had to have uh, quite a bit of a preparation for this uh, you know kind of kind of JIT to make sense for CPython uh, and we're already there right so we have the specializing interpreter uh, currently like in Python three eleven and better in three twelve. Which means that certain operations, uh, when we know the types of the operations, we are uh, switching the opcodes used by uh, Python uh, to other opcodes that are the same, but um, limited on, say, the types that are uh, you know used on I don't know the both operand side, which means we can. Um, Kind of forego some of the error checking that would be otherwise necessary because we already know that, for example, we are adding two ints together. Right. So now, using that fact that we already have specialization and we have those opcodes that are now using operations that are more um, efficient, what we can do is we can string together pieces of machine code to create longer traces of code that is fully machine code. And now, uh, a lot of the JITs that we have in the industry uh, make this machine code just at, you know, at the time, like at, at runtime, uh, which is where this just-in-time compilation name originally comes from. Um, there are many complications with this because you need to ship this entire compiler toolchain that is able to do this at runtime. So the copy and patch approach uh, does like something that sounds a little bit like a hack, but I personally find it extremely elegant. So what it does is uh, we have a pre-produced set of uh, small C programs that are uh, compiled with Clang to machine code, which in the end is just an array of um, uh, you know bytes. And we know that, oh, this particular piece is this uh, addition where both, or both operands are integers or so on and so on. Um, but the cool thing about those um, pieces of machine code is that they are uh, tail call friendly. Like, in fact, in Clang, there is a, a must tail uh, pragma that you can specify to right. your code that produces this sort of thing that you can uh, simply kind of 
tie together. You can you can you know like com combine uh, a bunch of those um, fragments into a longer trace. So this is the kind of core idea of why we can have a jet without having to ship um, another toolchain with, with yes, at runtime, which is brilliant. That is amazing. We will have LLVM as our build dependency to create all those trace, you know, arrays right. essentially, right? But once you are at runtime, we don't need any of those. And I find this extremely satisfying. Well, one of the one of the more exciting things about this, I think, is very smart as well because because you are leveraging basically an existing compiler to basically generate the machine code. So you don't need to write, like for instance, a different JIT backend for Intel and for macOS and AR64, 32-bit, 64-bit. That's like explosion of complexity because normally if your JIT lives inside your program, you need to have all these backends, right? If I recall correctly, you probably know it a bit better. I think PyPy has the back, these backends inside PyPy, right? Like um, yes. in the PyPy, so it needs to explicitly support this. But here, uh, you have as many platforms supported as your compiler does. So we have these C templates that are the different you know, patches and pieces of code. And then we just call the compiler in the specific platform. If you're in macOS, we use Clang for macOS. If you are in, you know, 32 bits, we use Clang in 32 bit mode, and you don't need to write this by hand. Which is, and not only that, but now you also have a optimizing compiler for free as well. So, so those those pieces of code are extremely optimized, and you're leveraging all these, you know, years and years of of uh, you know Clang development that otherwise you will need to re-implement in your small JIT, right? Uh, right, all of this is true, and this is like very promising. Uh, but uh, the overarching idea, like, is something that I can kind of grasp, and I can understand. Like, okay, like this is something that grows out of the specializing interpreter, and you know, like this is the stage where it happens. Where you can actually not only look at the um, you know kind of cryptic machine code uh, arrays of uh, you know bytes. You can do that, obviously, but you can look at the source code for what made them, which makes kind of understanding and analyzing what is happening way clearer right. to 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 you know kind of my simple brain. So um, I am very happy like that this sort of thing exists. Um, in fact, like the first I heard of it was I think the originator of the idea where uh, a new kind of Luajet was built with this technique and it was found not only to be feasible but also to be close to the performance uh, that you can achieve uh, with handwriting a JIT that creates those machine code, uh, machine right. code traces manually. Right. I mean, there, there is also, just to be clear here, like there is some complications still uh, that you need to like figure out. So for when you load those uh, pieces of compiled code into memory, uh, there is a bunch of addresses that are not known at the time. So for instance, if your JIT compiler calls a CIF API function like PyNumberAd, um, that it doesn't know where that number lives. So there is some piece that we need to still write in CPython that finds out, okay, we, we once we compile the final Python code, uh, where this symbol means, right? The technical term is symbol. Yes. So it finds out and then it goes to the machine code and substitutes that. So So there is all this like filling holes thing, like so. Is it still some work that you need to do? But it's orders of magnitude less than than, and and that's great because like one of the biggest 
uh, worries that, that I think we have as a team, like with the idea of having a JIT compiler. Like, okay, yes, let's say we have one, and you know, there's some requirements, but like, who is going to maintain this? Uh-huh. Because now, you know, you just to touch all this thing and even debug these things, you need to know now assembly and different platforms of assembly, and like, you know, all this stuff. So here you have obviously some complexity, but I'm, I'm I really think this is a super smart approach because. It's extremely more maintainable. You get platform support for free. Uh, it's optimized already for you, and you know you don't need to ship the entire LLVM infrastructure, which is super heavy, right? At runtime, right? So your binary is also very small, uh, and I, I'm very I'm very excited about this. Obviously, there is this is early stages, so you know we and and this I think this also I, th- I don't think we mentioned it. This builds on something um, that is this uh, idea of tier one, tier two interpreter. Maybe maybe we can give some small explanation of, of what's going on here. Sure. I already mentioned some about how we are transforming opcodes into versions that know the type of the operands and so on and so on. Uh, but since you are part of the faster Python team, like you have more context, so maybe I'll defer to you actually. Okay, I I um so I think we can probably also invite someone who who can explain it even better. But the the idea here is that right now I think we have like uh, you know the bytecode of Python is very uh, high level bytecode in the sense that uh, you you do this instruction when you say like uh, add two numbers right or like you know iterate over for loop or like so you know they feel obviously in the scope of an entire program they feel very. Um, small because obviously your program is, is made up of hundreds and thousands of these, but as an instruction they are, it's still very high level. Like add two numbers, there is a lot of complexity there because like um, it can be you know two integers or two one float and an integer, so it's like different things that you need to figure out, and that is in the same instruction. So these instructions are quite big, uh, which means that when you start thinking about like trying to translate into machine code, uh, it's a bit harder. One of the reasons is because if you want to now uh, you know put a bunch of these instructions together. Um, it turns out that they are too generic. That you know the, the possible combinations are much harder. So the JIT basically can generalize less. So the idea now is that you have this uh, piece of code that um, this is tier one. I think um, I don't know if it's one and two. I think it's tier one, and then the 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 other instructions are tier two. So the tier two instructions is basically the idea of having much simpler things. Like so, not even like four loops or something like that. It's like you know. Um, add two integers, so not two numbers, two integers, or like uh, you know. A pull number out of uh, a list or something like that. So, so much smaller pieces that maybe don't don't have an entire operation reflected into the code, but they can be composed together. Uh, if you know, in the terms of uh, compu- um, processors um, and uh, instruction sets, it's like CISC versus RISC, right? Like, um, yes, like ARM instructions. Uh, are much simpler. Um, you need many more, but on the other hand, you can you can combine them in many other ways uh, because they don't do much. So every instruction is very small, very fast, um, very efficient. Uh, while uh, Intel instructions, for instance, like CISC instructions, are big chunks of things. Like for instance, move move can do like plenty of things. Like I don't know, like you have seen the paper, but the move instruction is, is actually Turing complete. Like you can have a <laughs> you can have an entire program that is just moves, and someone actually made a a compiler called the Mofuscator that transforms any <laughs> program into into just moves. Um, it's quite cool. Like they have this talk when when he does like this, uh, you know, counting back from one hundred, and the whole talk uh, is 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 this program counting from one hundred to zero in the background uh, because yeah. it's obviously very slow. It, it's, but it's you know, slow and the branch predictor also doesn't like it, right? Yes, and also there is this image on like you know the uh, these decompilation programs that show you the the control flow. 
and it shows you like you know oh look at this like for loop with an if condition and it's like you know all the all the arrows and then it's like after the obfuscator it's a single line it's a single line of of moves one after the other yeah. um but the idea is that once you have this tier 2 which totally it takes some time to translate the first instruction into the second instructions um and then you need to like do some tracing as well which is like you need to see what the code is doing and oh we are adding integers and we know that they are integers and you need to do a bunch of other things like abstract evaluation to you know know exactly oh these pieces are doing this thing and like we can eliminate this code over here and a bunch of things but once you have the simpler instru- simpler instructions you can now activate the JIT over those simpler instructions because yes. they are more composable it's, it's more easy to just say oh let's compile every individual one and then start merging them um, and this means that you just need to compile the simple. You need just templates for the simple instructions instead of one template that is enormous for every of the complicated ones that are more are harder to um, compose. Obviously, there is a lot of nuance here, but this is the basic idea. Sure. So wh- one of the things I liked about this because you know, like the listener can have a question like like you know, cool. So if we are adding two integers together. That might be true now, but maybe the next argument that comes to the uh, you know invocation of this function to the call to this function is going to be a float or maybe something entirely different. You can use uh, user classes as well with the plus oper- uh, operator. So what's going to happen then? So what we have is uh, like kind of cheap instructions that are called guards, where we uh, check that. Uh, the arguments are still true for this particular combination of chosen types. Uh, and now with um, the JIT, we can just take all those guards and put them in the front of an entirely long trace and do this check once uh, instead of, you know, kind of, I don't know, like inside uh, for loops uh, iteration where we know this this should be true for the entire duration of the for loop, making it way faster than what we can achieve right now because you know the fastest code that is uh, running is the one that you actually avoid uh, executing so um like this this looks like a very promising approach for us right and I, and I think i'm I'm very excited like there is a lot of like like excellent engineering going into this so uh, and I'm very excited to see how far we get but i th- I think this is the first time. I'm pretty confident that that it's very likely that we end with something that we can actually ship, and you know, it's not extremely heavy, without being obviously disrespectful to previous attempts. But there is this internal joke that you know, jits. Uh, there is this grape the graveyard of jit compilers attempts. I think Mark Shannon actually have a repo called jit graveyard, and like he <laughs> he registers all the attempts. Um, so hopefully we don't end with an extra item there. Well, yeah, hopefully. Uh, like we n- didn't only have um, Brands talk about the possible, you know, kind of uh, ways forward from uh, the specializing interpreter as implemented in Python three twelve. Uh, we also had Kenjin uh, talk about how we can further make those tier two bytecodes uh, performant. Uh, like you know, can you talk a-, a little about how how you know, like what you think about that and how that works? Well, uh, he has been. I think this is based on um, some some uh, research that he's doing in his university with some colleagues there and a professor there. And they have been trying. Like he's been working really good and hard, like trying different approaches as well. So once you have, and I think he he said that he had already like a a, a copy and patch uh, version of this. Like he did. Like it's quite cool. Independently of brand, right? Like some kind of uh, maybe simpler or something like that. But um, he's been playing with different ways to 
you know, once you have those um, simpler tier two, um, you know, instructions, uh, you can now try to before you pass them to the JIT compiler, uh, you can now try to analyze them in different ways and uh, start to simplify things. So, for instance, once you and the idea that the good idea of like having the simpler instructions is that running um, different kind of analysis over all of them is much simpler because you have like more visibility over every single piece of code. Because if you merge all those big ones, like you know, for this, for that, like it's it's harder to see how the different values are flowing through the different instructions. As you said, I mean, it's maybe not the best example, but as you say before, you have like the iterating instruction for the for loop separated for the addition of the integers. You know, the addition of the integer instruction is to constantly check. I am still an integer. I am still an integer, even if the for the, the the for loop knows that obviously it's not changing the integer. But once you have these small ones, you can start tracing values through the whole thing. So you can do a lot of cool things uh, like you know escape analysis and like remove uh, right. uh, redundant uh, pushes and pops from the stack and things like that. Um, and uh, uh, he has been uh, working on like different ways. Um, so he's, if I understand correctly, um, he also is trying like very bare-bone different approaches as well from the one that the faster C Python team is immediately implementing, which is right because like we are charting kind of like different ways we can start moving and what are more promising. Uh, but the idea is that uh, he also he, he had like a good structure and he actually mentioned that he built the the first version of a copy and patch in two days or something like that, uh, if I recall correctly, which is. It's quite amazing. Uh, um, so yes, like the idea is that, that he's working on ways to analyze all of these instructions, if I go, uh, remember correctly. And once you have all of the instructions together, that you can start doing some kind of like you know static analysis. And he's he's uh, pulling from a lot of uh, compile, uh, sorry, compile functional languages. Uh, so for instance, uh-huh. one of the things he was looking at is that this idea of pure functions. So a pure function is a function that only depends on the input and um, yes. and the output is is um, it doesn't change basically the state. It doesn't have global state or side effects. So you know it doesn't the 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 jargon in the functional language is that it doesn't throw nuclear missiles, right? Like so <laughs> so if I call your function with two arguments, it's not going to do something sneaky, right? It's not going to insert into a database or it's not going to set a global or or in this case throw throw missiles, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's it no is action at a distance. Exactly, exactly. It's like a mathematical function. I give you two integers, uh-huh. you give me one integer back, and that's it. That's the whole idea. And the good thing about this function is that uh, you can predictably uh, optimize it away and do certain things because you're not scared that, oh, if I remove the, this call, something weird is going to happen. I think everyone has this feeling when you know you, you are like refactoring a code base and then you find this function and it's like, oh, this function is not doing anything, so let's remove it. And then suddenly everything breaks because the function was secretly right. Changing the configuration or something like that, right? And um, and 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 it's the same idea, but in the world of compilers, uh, you have a pure function. You you have something that you know that you know it's not doing anything funky, so you can maybe inline it, for example, or you can like uh, optimize it away and substitute the the final value. For instance, this is something that Clang is doing um, for some very special cases. So if you are adding all the numbers between one and n. Uh, instead of like you know calculating it, there is a closed formula for the result. So you can say, uh-huh. well, where, where I'm going to calculate if I know the result is this, and I just substitute the formula. Well, you cannot do that if your function, apart from calculating all these numbers, it puts them in a database, right? Because then, if you substitute for the result, it's not going to put every individual number in the database. Um, so, but if you know that it's just giving you the result, so you can substitute the entire function for the result, and that's it. Um, yes. You can cache it, for instance. Uh, this is, uh, but it's surprisingly the amount of functions that you will think they are pure and they are not. 
for instance, do, 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 would, would you think that the let's say the cosine function in libc is pure? It, you know, well, it's a cosine I, I function. Would, I would assume it should be yes. It's not like you can actually marry them. There is this attribute pure. Uh, you can tell the compiler, oh, I have this function is pure, and the reason is because there is some global state that the function has uh, regarding the floating point, um, you know, um, uh, arithmetic stuff. So it sets some cache as well. So if you call the function for a bunch of the same argument. It gives you the same the same argument without calculating it, and there is some approximation. So so it, you know there is a lot of things that they are not technically pure. Um, but the idea is that once you know you know that the Python function is pure, a bunch of code, not entire, maybe not the entire function, but a bunch of code is pure. You're gonna start like thinking about it and maybe move it around and optimize it. So so you think like this, and he's pulling a lot from these functional languages that have these concepts very well defined, uh, and trying to find ways to let's say have a more like higher quality tier two. Like set of instructions before feeding this to the JIT compiler, so you know the JIT compiler has even less thing to do. Right, because you know a lot of uh, Python usage is surprisingly predictable and static. It is a dynamic language, and the operands uh, can change widely, obviously. But very often, like they are generally known to have like certain uh, types, like. A lot of the for loops are around a range, right? right. And in, in this case, we can very clearly tell what the uh, operands are going to be, and so on and so on. So, uh, like this looks like a very promising uh, way to make the JIT do less, which is going to be faster, right? Right. I remember someone describing what you just said as the funkiness is very concentrated. So you know, like most <laughs> most of the stuff is just normal, and then there is this weird code that monkey patches some weird stuff. But it's you know, it's just this super specific path, and that's that's the thing that is going to give you the headaches, right? Like that's the, the pain is there. But most of the code, as you say, is like very regular. And you are, if if you are adding integers now, you probably will add integers later. So there is not going to be super generic code. Right, so most of the time. So, if you want to follow how this is shaping up, uh, instead of just looking at our repository, which you can, and you can build your own Python, you can also um, grab our periodic builds of Python three thirteen, where at the sprint we actually did the first one. So, three thirteen alpha one was released on Friday on the sprint Friday, uh, just to possibly attract some of the core devs into volunteering to be the next um, release manager for Python. Now we have Thomas uh, Wouters being the 3.12 and 3.13 release manager, but this is our rolling position and for uh, the 3.15 version we're going to need a new person. So uh, we were demonstrating how our release uh, works and how we're making the particular steps uh, now greatly simplified by uh, Pablo's automation, um, but still requiring some um, manual editing, like I don't know, like the release notes and building the installers, which, um, like thanks to Steve Dower's efforts for Windows, only requires us to click a nice blue button to start the pipeline. Two of them actually, right? Like there's two buttons. Well, uh, there is many buttons. In fact, if you want to like go into details, because it is uh, uh, not only automated but highly secure. So uh, it's a pipeline that is public on uh, Azure, so you can watch it once, uh, you know, while it's running without uh, logging in. And what you're going to notice is that there are many steps in it, and sometimes some of those steps ask the uh, original runner or another owner of the pipeline. 
like it, the pipeline asks for the step to be approved. And the reason why is that this particular step to be approved is unlocking some sort of secret. Uh, for example, it might have be like the certificate which with we're signing the release or an SSH key which with which we are logging into our download server to put the files there and so on and so on. So there are a few approval steps for the blue button, but the initial pipeline is as simple as specifying what we are actually building and clicking, right. clicking run. Well, one, one big thing that we are discussing these days um, uh, is precisely the security of the, of the release process, right? Because, for instance, as you say, there is a lot of automated steps, but like, you know, they happen on the machine of the release manager, right? So, yes. so you kind of like, who, what is happening there, right? Are we, what if you have a secretly evil release manager that is, is publishing some weird new module, you know, called uh, g.py that has, or repl.py, right? That has uh, all the secrets. So, um, and we have now a security developer in residence. We have many developer in residence uh, in this podcast. Uh, but we have a, a security developer in residence um, that is uh, actually looking at this right now. Maybe we, you can comment something uh, yeah, about uh, this. Right. So, uh, like the umbrella of those updates, in fact, is to make our releases reproducible. So, in the uh, kind of ideal world, um, you should be, re, uh, you know, you should be able to reproduce a release to the bytes. Like, you know, so like it should be the same tar XZ uh, that I produced. I should be able to produce exactly the same one the next day if I am starting from the same sources. So this part uh, is in fact already there for us. Um, like Seth Larson, who is the security developer in residence, updated our release script that builds the uh, source releases in a way that removes a lot of the variability from uh, the tarballs and from, you know, kind of um, file ownership and dates that, you know, are in the produced files and so on and so on. So the expectation is that as long as you are working with the same tooling, with the same libraries on the same operating system, you should be able to reproduce the exact same tarball more than once. Um, and I attempted this and arrived at the very same um, tar exit file with the same uh, SHA-1 sum as uh, Seth did. So yeah, like success, we, we, we are already there. And now the kind of um, step further from that would be to make the rest of our releases, which are the binary installers for Windows and macOS also kind of depend on some of that, right? So. If, if right. all of those steps will be uh, kind of made at some point, um, they can be automated so that we can, um, you know, except for the approval steps, uh, essentially make the entire release outside of the release manager's computer, which obviously is better. I don't think we really need to worry about trusting the release manager, but... Um, we definitely should be suspicious of any computing environment that even a careful release manager is running, uh, you know, their releases with. Uh, so, you know, kind of malware exists, uh, there can be, you know, some dependencies that you're pulling that are not the ones you want. There can be, I don't know, like um, tools on your operating system that don't exactly work as, as you'd like. 
so far, we haven't really seen malicious use of this, but we've been plenty annoyed by differences between, say, other tools, right? So other conf would have different output depending on the operating system, even if the version is the same. Now Which we is arrived... bananas. Like, yes. I, I still flabbergasted by this. It's just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, so, so we, we now arrived uh, at a version that appears to be okay, but even then we settled on running a container for uh, this particular piece because <laughs> just, that is the ridiculous. only way to make sure. It's just ridiculous, man. Like I, I think I think it's like this is the reason you know people take quite a lot of time to move to new versions of Python because like it's the same is is the same feeling. Like if they are already like scared to move, uh, you know, different versions of Python, just they they should try different versions of auto tools, uh, which <laughs> is just like Jesus Christ, like I mean this thing. But yeah, uh, I'm quite excited about that work as well because you know it's quite important, and and we are depending on how you measure the second or the first lang- most popular language. Um, you know, we are also the target of like a lot of all of these you know malicious intent. Like if you look at the status of uh, PyPI malware, it went from five malicious packages I think six years ago to thousands, like you know even a month uh, to the point right. that we have to stop the entire PyPI upload. And this year for for a day or something like that because there was so much malware being pushed that we 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 had to stop it. So this is a real concern, and and even more like there is even governmental bodies that are pushing all for for this uh, audit. So so you know it's maybe not flashy work, but it's very important. So we are very happy. Oh, that it's it, happening. It's extremely important. Like what, uh, one nice part of it, for example, is that like now. We are signing our releases uh, in a new way that is also uh, reproducible and also like kind of more easily verifiable by external parties, uh, like which is called Sixtor. Uh, like the rollout of this was essentially also the finalization of what Sixtor is. We were a very early adopter of it, but by now, um, this is a very cool kind of way of. Uh, making sure that the releases that you're downloading from python.org are the ones that we published and we claim we published. Uh, since, you know, kind of there is a um, third party that stores uh, the fact that, uh, you know, um, a package was signed and you can um, verify not only the hash of a file, but also the fact that, okay, it was signed and it was signed by the person who said it was signed with. And it was signed using uh, some, you know, OAuth, uh, you know, provider that we, or or, or more, more uh, correctly, OIDC provider that the uh, file says it was uh, signed with. So uh, I, for example, use the GitHub.com provider. You know, the other release managers would use uh, Google for this, and you know, it's a, it is a much, uh, you know, more transparent and secure way to do this than simple GPG keys, which we still kind of use because we didn't really phase them out. But as we know, and if you don't know, you should look this up, like the web of trust has been broken. So well, even the more important fact, I will say, and more people will probably find this closer to, you don't need six PhDs to know how to sign the thing and validate it, you yes. know, because... It's just, it's just, it's just crazy. Like the actual command that you use with Sixtor is Sixtor verify, and that's it. Like it used to be even Sixtor verify two files or three files, you know, that you need to download. Now is, I think now is smart enough to find them on disk and whatnot. So you know, it's, it's, it makes sense, and it will tell you good and bad, and like not like this weird output that you will say like, 
armor or like it's like doing transformers when you sign these things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now now it's now it's more sane and um and you don't you don't need like uh like weird things just to sign it. Uh, like I used to sign it with the Juby key and like it broke and like now what do I do? Right? It was good I have a backup. But you know, signing with like these these providers is not only more transparent, but it's also easier to audit, um, and it doesn't depend on like arcane software. That uh, the only way to work with them is like finding some '90s forum or blog post that explains the sequence of thirty commands that you need to write to to do it. Yeah, that was work that started before we got the security developer residence, but. Uh... Once Seth started working with us, like this became way smoother for us, and I am very happy to work with him. Uh, since the changes that he is bringing, like, are actually making the um, Python kind of release process not only secure, which I don't think we were particularly insecure in the past, but really kind of the state of the art secure uh, right. compared to many of the other programming languages that are in use. Right. And I think um, that's quite a good description of the sprint as well. I think we are missing probably a lot of details. There was uh, obviously one of the just to mention it, so people don't accuse us to, uh, you know, like forgetting about it uh, on purpose. There was a lot of talk about like the CAPI. That's a big uh, item these days. Yeah, the CAPI, as used by our users, is um, like a way for. Um, like external code written in the C programming language to interact with the C interpreter. And historically, we didn't have a good notion of what uh, is an implementation detail and what is um, actually meant for external use. This was uh, like improved over the years. So by now we have a pretty good idea. But not only do older extensions kind of you know still use the old ways of doing things, but some extensions uh, kind of consciously decide to use implementation details of CPython to produce code that is, for example, more efficient or to allow a thing that is impossible to do otherwise. And this is making our lives harder because um, updating those internal APIs is breaking those C extensions. So there is a large problem space there. And in fact, I don't even have to make a summary of it because now we do have a PEP that is a summary of the issues uh, with the C API. Oh, this is the one that Edith made, right? Exactly right. And this was like this is a ginormous topic that is full of like areas and alleys and things like that because not only like defining the problems, but it's also defining you know like all possible attempts and like there was all this uh, talk from the HPy people that are already thinking very hard about these problems and working on a way that also allows other Python implementations to work so you don't need to you know compile an extension with uh, you know or prepare your code with six million if devs just because you want to support PyPy and C Python and things like that. So there is like this 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 topic is huge. Maybe we can even do a, a, an episode about this in, in the future with people that are closer to the the trenches that we are right. Right. Okay. So what I'm seeing here is that we have PEP seven three one, which is the charter of the CAPI working group, uh, as just founded, I guess, and it does link uh, to a group of problems, like an inventory of problems with the CAPI. And so, if you're curious, you can go and look there. Um, but yeah, definitely it's good to see large interest in addressing this. Uh, obviously, 
kind of possible futures for CPython dictates also necessary changes to the C APIs, which is why this uh, particular problem space is seeing, uh, you know, kind of a lot of interest right now. Because when you remove the gill, or when you have sub-interpreters, uh, or, uh, you know, kind of if you're doing the JIT, like suddenly different sets of uh, APIs are going to be needed for this. And how uh, those different modes of operations are going to interact is an entirely new area of research. Like we are now no longer copying what, uh, you know, Donald Knuth uh, taught us. Like we are now actually like, you know, kind of looking for the next book in his series because this is science that hasn't been done yet. Right. And it's, it's quite hard because because uh, there is a lot of things happening at the same time that all touch the same core, right? Like as you right. mentioned, uh, removing the gill not only requires thinking about how you're going to be compatible with the previous extensions or if, if you're not going to be compatible, what you need to remove or add, but also you need to think about like what do you need in the future that is general enough that you don't need to keep changing it. But at the same time, you have uh, multiple interpreters happening. Like if I recall correctly, like even Yuri uh, Selivanov was talking about <laughs> needing new C APIs for his MemHive uh, right. Thing. So you know, it's very core, and like uh, as we add more things to this, or or even deprecate, uh, it has a lot of ripples through the entire ecosystem. You know, like you know, NumPy doesn't work, right? And why is not? Because we change this this thing, and because Cython changed this other thing. So you know, the the is is core to the experience that a lot of people have when porting to new versions. So getting it right is fundamental, and the problem space is quite big. So so. Yes, there was a lot of discussions around CPI uh, in the sprint, so it's very difficult to summarize the whole the whole state. I think at the point is they were just mainly collecting the problems, right? So it's not like we we didn't arrive to any any solution or any like uh, you know area to work on, right? Well, there were uh, a few presentations from different kind of I don't know experts or interest groups, as you might call them. Uh, a veteran of the Python project and a very pro prolific core contributor, Victor Stinner, gave a summary of the problems as he is seeing them. And there were some suggestions on how we made, uh, how we addressed them in the future. And Petr Viktorin, who is working very closely with the CAPI as being a Fedora maintainer and somebody who is, you know, advocating for stability in this regard, like had his own uh, perspective on this. And finally, we had the HPI uh, guests uh, on the sprint, uh, you know, teach us about the kind of experiences they had with uh, introducing a new kind of API for Python and things that we will definitely need uh, when we're thinking of a future version of it. Right. Yeah, and there is a lot of exciting things there. Like the the whole HPI is super easy to debug. So yeah, like certainly that that made me. Quite hopeful. Um, just all the all the hours that are being you know spent debugging reference counting, and they have a thing that can just point you to where the problem is, right? So, but yeah, may, maybe sometime until we can use some well, something like that. It, it won't tell you where you should be putting your decref, but they will definitely tell you where where the extra ingref is. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, very excited about all of work, and it's a, a lot of very good technical work there. Uh, but you know. Cool. I don't think we we are leaving. Well, I'm, I'm sure we are forgetting some things, but um, but I think that's a good summary. Do you want to um, add something on on your impressions, like maybe a a summary of the experience for this year for you? 
for me specifically working from Poland and, you know, kind of being both different time zone than uh, the other core contributors, but also very much a different uh, physical space, meeting with uh, the team is always like a family reunion. This is a special time of the year. I, I value it very highly. Uh, Brno was a place that I haven't, you know, visited before. So I was very kind of surprised at how kind of... Uh, friendly and interesting the city is like there's some quirky art here and there uh like you know kind of the buildings look very impressive um uh, the downtown especially the historic downtown was an established living city and it, it was just very pleasant to spend the evenings there after we spent the entire day at the red hat campus so i enjoyed it quite a lot uh it's going to be hard for us to, you know, kind of meet that bar with uh, some of the American um, sprint weeks where you can walk for hours to get absolutely nowhere. Right. Uh, you, you absolutely need to take Ubers and so on and so on, where the tragedy of uh, the public transit is that there is no public transit. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah still, I mean, if I enjoy quite a lot of the, the sprint that we did in San Francisco, I remember the transport situation was was something else. So Certainly, I, I I shared your your uh, comments about like how cool it was just to walk and like you know meet people. I I remember like at some point you know we were uh, for after dinner we were looking for Victor like you know we we didn't knew where he was or he didn't knew where we were and like we were like four streets away right and like yes. that is impossible to replicate in in an American city. Uh, you will need two Ubers and like three three uh, hours of walking just to to uh, meet if you don't know where you are. So yes, like. That was nice and it felt calmer, right? It was chiller, right? Like more chill yes. than, than maybe other well, sprints. I do have to mention the irony of the situation where I did bring uh, a car to the sprint. So I'm, I'm talking about the public transit and I'm the one that didn't actually take it. Uh, yeah, 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 I get all It this. will not be who complains because you, you uh, pick me up in the airport in Prague from Brno, which is two hours of driving one way and then two hours of driving the other way at... Uh, like 2 a.m. or something. So I'm not going, I'm not the one going to complain about your car. Yeah. I mean, like I was, I was the kind of ad hoc taxi driver for a few people, uh, which, which is nice. I do enjoy my road trip. So don't get me wrong, Americans. Like, you know, essentially I'm, I'm, I'm not against like a good experience on the road. Uh, but you know, if this is your only option, that makes things more complicated. Like in, in Brno, we had both the ability to kind of choose where we want to go with the car, but most of the time it was very walkable. So once you reach downtown, you didn't have to worry about parking. You didn't have to worry about like, you know, kind of having a beer or two because we were already, uh, you know, where we needed to be. So that was definitely fun. Uh, what else was there? We had a steering council Q&A at some point and you are on the steering council. So anything to add on that? Yeah, I think I think uh, it was uh, th like one never knows how this Q and A will go. So I think one interesting aspect that we discussed quite a lot is the idea of uh, you know improving diversity in the core team, and um, and that's a very interesting topic because we are all aligned over what the goal is, but it's it's challenging to devise ways to uh, you know arrive there, and it's something that we know that we you know there is a lot of things that. We still need to work on like our diversity numbers don't look really well. Uh, although we have improved over the years, so it's not that we are sitting still, but we still need to do better. And there is a lot of challenges. I think um, there is also a lot of uh, you know things to try. 
I think uh, Carol Williams was uh, mentioning the idea of like uh, setting up some link between core developers and pie ladies um, to, right. to you know start mentoring. Um, and we discussed several aspects of uh, our workflow and culture that could be improved to allow more contributors. Uh, and also some challenges, like uh, I mentioned, like for instance, that uh, I've been mentoring uh, three women this year, women this year in the project. But uh, unfortunately, we we um, they didn't decide to continue, which is fine, right? We, it's not you know you're not forced to continue to be a core developer. You can just contribute, and that's fine. Um, but but unfortunately, one of the reasons they didn't want to continue was because um, some of the interactions with uh, you know outside contributors were not super um, you know nice. Which is not like you know, like to be to be clear, the the code of conduct was not violating this interaction. It's just that you know, it's, it's a difficult difficult space to um, uh, to be because you know people are very excited about uh, their project being uh, you know working, and we do changes that they think that we shouldn't do, uh, but we did it in any way because we need to move the project forward, and they are a bit vocal about this. So you know, nothing nothing fundamentally wrong, but this impacts a lot the experience for a lot of contributors. Uh, so course. we we had some discussions about like how we could improve this and like um, what the problems are and maybe some ways to um, dif- the the ways different core developers see mentoring. Uh, mentoring was a big aspect that we discussed quite a lot. Uh, like yes. how do you approach uh, mentees from different backgrounds, different needs? Uh, how do you um, one of the problems that many people have when they contribute to the project is like how do I find a an easy issue to start with, right? And like how that is like the hardest part because um, like the, the Python project is a super old project and there is no more low hanging fruit. So there is no such thing as an easy issue. I mean, if, if it is, uh, it's probably behind the eternal discussions of like, you know, 10 people discussing different ways to do it. So it's not just a matter of like someone needs to code this, but it's just a matter of yes. like someone needs to combine everyone. So sometimes that, something that is easy in code is going to be hard in reaching consensus, and other times something that is seemingly easy, like only you will discover it's a can of worms once you get closer to it and open it. Right, and I think the other thing that we discussed in the Q and A was <laughs> the, the the notes from the state council that they tend to be a bit vague and like maybe late. Um, but um, one of, we we discussed. I mean, again, I don't want to be apologetic for the council uh, on the notes, but like uh, we discussed, one of the reasons this is like this, um, are like, like one of the things that happen is that you know um, th- those notes need to be uh, taken by by the state council itself. So you know, one of us rotates every single meeting, and the notes have different styles, and then we need to review them. So there is a long process that is very difficult to streamline. Although this doesn't mean that we need to improve it, but you know that that explains why they tend to be a bit late, and also like there is a lot of details that normally are kept uh, like vague because like uh, the, we cannot talk about the individual comments that everyone in the Steam Council made, uh, but we need to speak with one voice, which is what the Pep says, and that right. means that you know we we cannot just explain all the thought process that we have because we we are obviously not like a hive mind that we sit together and vibrate and we produce a decision. Uh, we 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 speak individually. And that those those things cannot be placed. Uh, but but you know we highlight some of the uh, problems that uh, this still have, like the feeling that someone submits a pep and then it's like nothing for three months and then it gets a decision and that 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 sucks, right? Like in the sense that this is maybe not a good feeling. Uh, you may need to keep revising your thing. So so you know we we understand this. We we are aware and we discuss several things that we can uh, do to improve. For instance, one of the things that we have. 
which is open to everyone, is that the Steering Council is offering uh, office hours. So one hour before our meeting on Mondays. Uh, so this is our meeting starts at um, 6.30 London time, which is the time and now. I'm not going to say any other time because I'm really bad at time zones. You convert it in good using Google. Uh, so at 5.30 London time, you can actually request, um, um, or uh, no, it's half an hour, so it has to be at 6. Well, anyway, you, it, it is there uh, somewhere. Uh, so around 6, I think, London time, you can request like a, a meeting with the Steam Council to talk about whatever you want. I mean, this is uh, obviously is going to be leveraged mainly by core devs, but I think it's open to everyone. Uh, so you can like bring your concerns. So you are proposing a PEP, for instance, and you have not heard from us in a long time and you want to share, um, you know, or know a bit better about the situation or, or you want to share some nuance that is around these things or you want to know, you know, how some decisions the steering council took and, and things like that, you can request this time and then you can have a meeting with the steering council. Anything is, is, a, is a good topic. Uh, we expect that, you know, many of these um, like edges that are maybe not the best uh, are a bit uh, easier f to people using these meetings when they can share information with us and ask us questions and you know uh, they can they can have a more direct line of communication. Obviously, there is also other ways so you can open still issues on GitHub and there is many ways to contact the team council. You can send us an email uh, or our email address. Um, but this this is like obviously a more direct way. So hopefully we can address some of the concern that core developer had regarding communication with the Steam Council and, and you know not seeing the Steam Council as this entity that is there and makes decisions, but it's impossible to to uh, understand how, how they happen, right? All right, very cool. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I've been at the sprint and I was working very hard on this one thing and you didn't even mention it with one word, then let us know. We can, we can talk about it like next time and we can um, put some more focus on uh, more of those uh, kind of contributions that were made during the weekend, but no, or after. Uh, like the only thing that we need to be mindful of now is that we're already past the hour mark for uh, this episode. So we uh, but need with to the magic be mindful of, editing, of time. It may be even shorter, right? Oh uh, yeah, we're gonna just uh, cut out all the all the things that I you know bored you with. So it's gonna be fifteen <laughs> minutes. It's gonna be a fifteen minute long episode. Right, right. This is not an official CPython product, uh, yada, 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 right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, uh, the, the recording process us. is not reproducible. Like, we can right. do post edits that are very deep. Right. Cool. I mean, I, I, I'm very excited to see uh, what uh, the listeners think about this, if they find it interesting or like what aspects they, they think we should talk more or, or maybe less. Uh, if I should change my my Spanish accent to something <laughs> something better, uh, but but yeah yeah please uh, reach to us uh, probably um, I don't know like Twitter for me uh, or or email I think works as well uh, right. to tell us what you think um, and we can we can probably improve it in in new episodes. It's it's not Twitter anymore. It's X Twitter. It's it's it is no more. And, and it's always X and then uh, between parentheses formerly Twitter. Okay, uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, this was the introductory episode of Core.py. We hope to make more of them. How often? That is still to be decided. Like we are targeting to do, um, you know, once every two weeks. I'm I'm trying to avoid the bi-weekly word, which is uh, kind of hilariously ambiguous. Uh, you know, we can say fortnightly, but that sounds a little Shakespearean to me. I don't know. It's cool, man. Like uh, once I learned that word, I'm using it everywhere. It's like fortnightly. 
Yeah. Sounds like you're Romeo. It's like, oh, yeah, fortunate. <laughs> I'm not trying to seduce you, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cool. Uh, let us know how, it, how this went and if you'd like us uh, to change anything. Yeah, this was fun. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.